This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is, how bad did it get for the NBA, really? Okay, we are back. I am Jason. With me, as usual, is Rich. And Hello. We are talking about, you know, we've all heard that the NBA really struggled in the late 70s and early 80s with financial issues, drug addiction gone rapid, overall bad image, struggling TV ratings, perception of aloof players. You know, is it really as bad as people say, or is it just somewhat exaggerated to kind of make a better story out of the eventual restoral of the NBA under magic and bird. You know, that that's uh, something I've always kind of wondered about a little bit. You know, it's, it's sort of a convenient story to, for things to get this bad and then for magic and bird to lead the comeback. And, you know, and what's the truth there? Yeah, I guess and an interesting question to ask, and maybe we'll get to the bottom of that a little bit too, is like, was it ever really great or did it just like, did magic and bird make it great? But the seventies were just kind of like the, you know what I mean? Like, cause there, there's always that idea too. It's like, well, was it really that like, like, yes, the Celtics were great. And you know, they, there was some, but maybe not maybe in the fifties and sixties, it wasn't all that peachy. And maybe the seventies is just kind of neutral from those. And it really was the eighties that that you know explored the nba on a big scene but did it get bad or worse in the 70s or was it just kind of the same it's, it's an interesting question for sure yeah and you, you know um uh breaks the game really perpetuates that idea of you know okay this game really was that there was this great healthy small league with you know these really good rivalries and these good stars and a good dv product like in the you know i guess the mid to late 60s and then expansion kind of made tore everything apart and you know, it started making guaranteed contracts and all that you know we went through that in a breaks of the game podcast but i think that kind of creates that myth a little bit so uh, looking at the reality I, I i think it's a it's a mixed um i think you can kind of make the case but i think there's some things that complicate that case as well oh certainly yeah so looking at the attendance in tv ratings and there's some great numbers on the attendance from the compendium of professional basketball by Robert bradley which i recommend to anyone who's a serious uh, nba fan uh, interested in, if you're interested in our podcast you'll be interested in that um so from 77 through 80 roughly attendance stayed roughly steady somewhere in the uh 9.8 to 9.9 million dollar range it you know it it went down a little bit in 78 for the first time it was the first decline in attendance in 1950 it's 20 years um then it it stayed relatively steady through 80 then 81 there was a a fairly significant dip from 9.93 million to 9.44 million um and almost a thousand um a fewer, uh, you know, per game, and that and that, that includes eighty-one was an expansion year with the Mavericks, so that's a really big dip, even with the extra team. Um, then it, it goes up a little bit in eighty, and then down a little bit in eighty-three, but still, still staying at at similar levels. 
And then 84 is really when the turnaround begins. And, you know, from 84 to 87, it goes from 10 to 10.5 million to 11.2 to 12 million. Within by 87, there's an average crowd of, you know, of 12,795 per game. So clearly at that point, you know, that that's really when the attendance turnaround begins and it does make some sense that you know bird and magic are now very established in the league 84 is when the uh, celtics lakers finals happens but it does take a while into the 80s for that really to begin you know it didn't it certainly didn't happen right away with bird and magic Absolutely. Yeah. And there's other, you know, superstars that are kind of emerging a little bit as well. Of course, you have that, you know, vaunted, uh, you know, 84 draft class that comes in with, you know, Hakeem Olajuwon and Michael Jordan and those sort of guys, too. So I I do wonder if that was like they needed the auxiliary guys to kind of come in and push it a little bit over the edge where you have your, you know, your dominant superstars. You have those two guys, those two teams. But then you get this influx of like, you know, one of the best drafts of all time and this influx of other new rising superstars, too, that maybe then pushes it up another level, too. And it's also other markets getting a lot more. I mean, you you know, uh, especially Chicago getting Michael Jordan that was a market that was all but dead in a major you know media market they start kind of rising like a phoenix so they kind of come up and then yeah Houston as well who wasn't a slouch either that you know had kind of been a, a, a sort of waiting in the wings for a while and then Hakeem comes in and all that stuff kind of comes in and they start becoming kind of a powerhouse uh, uh, as well so maybe it was kind of the, str- the, the the distribution also Patrick Ewing I mean you can't deny that as well Patrick Ewing coming in going to the Knicks another major huge media market as well and becoming kind of a budding superstar there so I think it's a little bit of both of those factors yeah, I I would agree. So looking at the TV ratings, um, starting in 76, there was a 11.5 rating and a 29 share. 77 actually goes up to a 12.7 rating. Uh, 78 and 79 are down quite a bit. Uh, 78 is 9.9. 79 is 7.2. Those are both the Bullets and Sonics um, finals. 1980 with the Sixers and um, Lakers goes up to 8.0, but that's still down from 78. Uh, 81 with the uh, Rockets and Celtics dips down a bunch to 6.7. That's the uh, low mark. And this is, by the way, the the average rating for finals games for those series. Mm -hmm. Um, 82, pretty big jump to 13.0. That is the the second uh, Sixers um, Lakers series. And now we're past the point in which the uh, the games are being tape delayed. You, and, and the tape delay was not necessarily a national thing, but it was tape delayed in lots of part of the country and then shown live in the local markets. Um, and then 83 is actually well, – it makes sense that 83 would be down from 82 because it was only a four-game series. So it's, it's down from 13.0 to 12.3. So not a significant dip. And then interestingly enough, 84, which is the Celtics-Lakers, is down a little bit to 12.1. You would think that one would have been way up because of the interest in Bird versus Magic. But at least in, in terms of the finals TV ratings, that was not the case. It was down very slightly. And then 85, which is the Celtics-Lakers rematch, is up to 13.5. And 86 and 87 are big jumps, 14.1 and 16.787. And then throughout the 80s and early 90s, you're getting, you know, really strong ratings for the most part, particularly when you have Lakers and Bulls in the finals. Absolutely. And uh, one of the other factors as well of the 70s is is the drugs. Of course, it's a huge issue. Uh, You know, a series of NBA players during the late 70s, early 80s got into legal trouble, had to enter rehab because of drug issues. Um, As as noted, you know, the the NBA is hardly alone in this. You know, the MLB had their issues as well. And every every professional sports league kind of dealt with this as well. But uh, in a league with, you know, predominantly black athletes and black players playing in the league, it, it tended to get a little bit of a 
you know, greater reputation for that damage. And there's possibly, possibly also the aspect too, that because, and, and it happens with a lot of stuff with like, um, you know, Alan Iverson, a guy who, you know, in the hall, just joined the hall of fame this past year. He's a guy that I always mentioned where the fact that you could see his face and see his tattoos and see his emotions or whatever, people tend to get more kind of hot takey about, you know, how they react and their emotions and how they're on the court. I do wonder as well, if that plays a part in it, where there's probably guys, you know, hopped up on cocaine playing the NFL, but they're wearing a, a you know, helmet and pads and golly knows. Whereas you, a lot of times there are, you know, you'll see stories as well where they can, they'll talk about NBA players and it's like, well, he's obviously on drugs, like look at him and you can tell, you can see his eyes, you can see his face, you can see how he reacts, you can see you're, you're up close. So I do wonder if that plays a part a little bit in it as well. But one thing you will notice throughout this, and I guess it's, it, you know, I'm going to mention a bunch of players here that got in trouble um, with drugs and, and got suspended by the NBA and all that sort of stuff. One thing you'll notice is a lot of it be- happens in the 80s. A lot of suspensions happen in the 80s. A lot of their problems, though, started in the 70s. And I think it's not necessarily fair to say, oh, well, it wasn't a problem in the 70s because, look, all these things happened in the 80s because really the the NBA in 1983, we'll talk about that, really kind of said, OK, we need to we need to figure this thing out and started really putting down harsh penalties, really suspending guys, really trying to get behind it as well. So the 70s, while there isn't as much punishment in the 70s, it is well known as an era where guys were, in many cases, especially cocaine being one of the primary ones, guys were just do, doing it a lot you know, during games, after games, before games, you know, stuff like that. But, yeah, you will see that a lot of these ones that we're going to mention are suspension that happened in the 80s. But uh, here's a few guys. Spencer Haywood, uh, he was famously suspended by the Lakers during the 1980 finals. Uh, got so bad for Spencer, uh, as I mentioned, you know, they suspended him during the finals. Uh, they could have used him, too, as a few days later, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would go down with an ankle sprain uh, that would force Kareem to miss missed the deciding game six in the NBA finals, but uh, the Lakers were without Spencer Haywood uh, because he had so many issues. Um, and Spencer did not take this too well. He actually formulated a revenge plan that would end in Paul Westhead's murder. This is true. In a 1988 interview, he said he wanted to possibly cut Westhead's car brakes. Um, and then he went into great detail discussing flying out a genuine certified gangster. That's a quote, by the way, genuine certified gangster from Detroit, along with his associate to formulate a plan to murder Paul Westhead. So uh, not, yeah. not not the greatest uh, thing there. Uh, Bernard King, uh, during his debut season, 1977, he was arrested on charges of possession of marijuana, prowling and resisting arrest. Uh, he received uh, receives a 60 day suspension and paid a fine of one hundred dollars. Uh, just one year later. Later, he was arrested again on cocaine possession charge while driving. Uh, a, re- a routine search also uncovered a small amount of cocaine in an envelope found in his pocket. Uh, and then he was also charged with reckless driving and driving without a license after that and, as well. And also with Bernard King, there's a, 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 a like a 1980 arrest when he's in Utah where he has more serious drug charges and also like a, mm-hmm. a sexual assault charge that was uh, and sodomy that were later. I, I think he pleaded guilty to lesser charges in that situation. So, so he had like three mm-hmm. or four runs with the law and major drug issues before you know he. Could he went eventually did, did pretty well with the Warriors and then went to the Knicks yeah. and obviously was successful there. Absolutely. Uh, Fast Eddie Johnson is our next guy, which is when your name's Fast Eddie, it's probably not very good. You're probably going to be a bit like, and this is, you're probably going to get into trouble. Like, and this is the Hawks Eddie Johnson, not the right. Suns Eddie Johnson, who was later in the, uh, is a broadcaster now. So that's, that's yes. an important or, distinction. Um, I think there was another, I, I was reading some articles too, and they used, because there was an Eddie Johnson that played in the 90s, correct? Yeah, that's the Suns, um, Eddie Johnson. Yeah, the, oh, that's, that's that, yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, right. Yeah, the problem though is when, when this fast Eddie Johnson was getting in like legal trouble, they would show the Suns, Eddie Johnson in like news broadcasts because they would just type like Eddie Johnson, NBA, and then like right. their image search or whatever, and that one would come up and they're like, he's been arrested. He's done it. It's like, oh, wait, hold on. Like, I, I haven't. But uh, this Eddie Johnson, fast Eddie Johnson, bailed cocaine addiction uh, for many years after uh, several suspensions. He finally checked himself into rehab in 1986. 
Uh, after he failed to follow through on mandatory counseling, the NBA banned him for life in 1987. Uh, Johnson battled uh, cocaine addictions again, you, you know, throughout his year. In 19, uh, 2008, rather, Fast Eddie Johnson uh, was convicted of sexual battery of a minor under 12 and lewd and levacious molestation of a child under 12. Uh, the counts carried a mandatory life sentence without parole, and he is currently incarcerated at Santa Rosa Correctional Institute. So another guy that, that just drugs in a large part derailed his career and had a good little uh, run going for a little while, played for the Hawks and a few other teams as well. But uh, yeah, just got completely derailed. Uh, by that, John Lucas is our next guy. Twice in his career, Lucas was banished from the NBA for using drugs. Uh, first time was uh, December 1984. The second time was uh, in 1986 offseason. Uh, he tested positive for cocaine uh, that offseason. Uh, in order to stay in the league, uh, Lucas underwent anti-drug and anti-alcohol treatment. He spent four more years in the league before retirement. Uh, and then uh, he's one of the good stories because after uh, drug rehab, he, uh, he returned to the NBA as a coach and started to opera- operate a substance abuse recovery program to help other uh, athletes. And uh, still to this day is doing pretty well from what I uh, – uh, and, you know, coached in the league for many years as well. But, uh, yeah, seemed to definitely clean himself up after having some really bad run-ins uh, for a while. Uh, David Thompson, uh, drugs, alcohol, and cocaine all affect his career immensely. He's a guy who we've mentioned many times throughout this podcast. A guy who was an absolute great scorer, just a dynamic player for the Nuggets. But eventually, by the early 80s, it kind of all started falling apart for him. And in uh, 1982, uh, this was his last year in Denver, he had become drug addicted. Uh, he joined drug rehab clinics uh, to reform himself, but all efforts uh, did not really work. Uh, the last nail in the coffin was a accident at the famed Studio 54 nightclub when he fell down from the stairs and got a severe knee injury, which forced him out of the league at a pretty a pretty young age. So he's a guy that, that really could have had another long run in the NBA, but just drugs kind of put him down in general. Following his uh, NBA career, Thompson continued to downward spiral with drugs and alcohol. Uh, he, though, thankfully became a committed Christian and put his life back in order. Uh, he now devotes his time to working with young basketball players and helping them to aspire to his achievements and avoid his mistakes. So another good story as well. Uh, Quentin Daly is another one. He missed practices in games. Uh, he famously gained 30 pounds in a single season. He twice violated the league's drug policy and once attempted uh, suicide side and took leaves of absence and um i forgot i didn't check in on how, what quentin daly is uh, or how he ended up but uh definitely had some bad run-ins there uh michael ray richardson a guy we talked about on this podcast before uh, february 1986 i test positive for cocaine for a third time he becomes the first player to get banned under the nba's anti-drug program uh he went on to play a few seasons after being banned in the continental basketball association the united states basketball league and then also played in europe as well um a few more here real quick. Uh, John Drew, he was the former Atlanta Hawks guard. He was the first player ever to be banned uh, for life by the NBA's new drug policy. His career came to an end due to a cocaine addiction. Uh, during the 83 offseason, he missed a huge or uh, during the 83 season. He missed a huge number of games as he underwent an intensive eight week detox uh, treatment while he would win the league's comeback player of the year uh, award in 1984. Uh, he relapsed in 1985 and was banned from the NBA in 1986 for multiple violations. Uh, as of 2002, Drew was living in Houston, Texas, where Charles Barkley had last reported seeing him and had finally had a grip on his cocaine addiction. But he is doing uh, he's a taxi cab driver in Houston. So you might get John Drew as your uh, taxi cab driver if you go to Houston. Uh, then Marquise Johnson is our last one. Nine months after Johnson, Junior Bridgman and Harvey Catchings were traded to the Los Angeles Clippers. This is 1984. Uh, the Clippers filed suit in Los Angeles federal court to nullify the trade because the Bucks had not told the Clippers that Johnson had undergone treatment at St. Mary's Drug Rehab Facility in Minneapolis uh, while he was still with the Bucks. The trade was not nullified in October 1985. Johnson told the Milwaukee Journal he was treated for cocaine use again. So he, he kind of confirmed it. There was it, there was a question at the time and Marquise sort of went, oh, I don't know what that's talking about. And Don Nelson was like, that's the first I've heard. Like pretty much everybody in Milwaukee was kind of saying, no, 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 we have no idea about it. But later they, they admitted that that was an issue. So as you can see, a lot of this stuff did come down in the early 80s. But 
it was still an issue in the 70s, even though there wasn't as much enforcement as we sort of saw in the 80s when when David Stern comes in the league and a few other guys come in the league and go, OK, we need to really get this thing under control because it was it, it was bad in the 70s. Yeah. I, by the way, for uh, Quentin Daly, he uh, he passed away in 2010. Um, oh, OK. I didn't know. There, that. Yeah. There's, yeah, I'd forgotten that there's a story also in uh, during a game against San Antonio in uh, 85. He had a ball boy bring him food during a game, and as the uh, as the game as the third quarter drew to a close, he was eating a slice of pizza, nachos, popcorn, and a soft drink. So, not, not great decisions yeah. for uh, for for him. Yeah, you, it's interesting because you know the uh, the cocaine use goes on. Of course, you know it, it, as much of an '80s problem as it is a '70s problem. Yet it doesn't really affect the popularity of the league as it starts to increase during that time. But as you mentioned, that's also when people start getting suspended for and the serious punishment starts to happen. And I wonder if there's a correlation between, yeah. you know, okay, we don't feel like we don't feel bad investing in this league that we feel is, has all these drug addicts because they're going after, you know, these, this law enforcement type thing. You know, I wonder if that, that probably certainly had an appeal to a certain segment of fans, but yeah, there was talk at, you know, at certain points that, you know, like, 75 or 80 percent of the of the guys were using cocaine which you know seems a little bit high i mean i can certainly buy that that number of guys had used cocaine but were actively using the drug you know in the late Mm -hmm. 70s that seems a little bit um hard to swallow but certainly you know i i don't think anyone's going to argue that it wasn't an issue during that time but it's interesting where it's sort of perceived as a thing that's sort of preventing the league from you know catching on in popularity in the late 70s um you know, with you know its effect on play or just with you know the the scandals you know turning people off but at the same time it's it's still an issue in the mid 80s yet it you know two comeback player of the years in a row i believe you know john drew and michael richardson end up you know relapsing unfortunately right uh, so uh, you know it, it's interesting how I, I it maybe kind of fits the narrative, but there's some you know question about that. I don't know, but but looking at the uh, the finances and how bad finances get, um, you know, there's stories of teams almost going under. Of course, the bidding war with the ABA had let you know salaries increase quite a bit, and with for the most part, the NBA instead of using deferred compensation, you know, they didn't have the dog off plan. They they did do some deferred compensation, but it was more you know it, well, well we'll get into that a little bit, but it wasn't necessarily like the 20 years down the line like the ABA was using. Um, but salaries had increased dramatically, and you know franchises with reported financial problems so bad that the league nearly had to step in. It, at the very least, the Nuggets, Pacers, Nets, Pistons, Cavs, Kings, Jazz, and Clippers all had serious issues where the league had to step in at a certain point. You know, in the late seventies or early eighties, um, June of seventy-seven. So you know, pretty much after the uh, merger. Um, the uh, a year after the merger, the NBA owners vote to reduce the rosters from 12 to 11, which uh, the player union sues. But basically, the idea is that's a cost-cutting measure to get at least one fewer player, so they're not having to pay high salaries. But at the same time, David Thompson in April of 78 signs the richest contract in pro sports, five years, four million. Uh, which this is right before he really gets into the you know um, uh, bad situation of cocaine. Um, you know, in, in 79, where the addiction takes serious hold for him. Uh, Bill Walton in May of 79 also signs a seven-year, $5.6 million deal. So this kind of crazy money, especially for Walton, given his injury history, is being thrown around at the same time these, you know, um, teams are um, 
dealing with these financial issues, which kind of demonstrates to me like the ownership is not being the smartest year. They're sort of, you know, hoping for things to get better, but aren't really, you know, planning all that well. Right. And in December of 79, a group of owners meet to discuss revenue sharing and worries about expansion, which is being talked about and worries like, hey, you know, we're going to dilute the league if we're not careful. Um, in February of 1980, there's a new CBA signed, which agrees to restore the 12 roster spots by 83 and also limits future deferred payments to two years rather than any, being any further than that. Uh, March of 1980, Dallas gets an expansion team. The original plan was two expansion teams, so they at least limit that. In April of 1980, Ted Stepien buys the Cavs. We talked about that in our ownership. <laughs> and that goes well. Yet. That goes really well. Because right. so. uh, he's great. He's a great man, uh, great owner, just great everything. So Yeah. May of 81, Donald Sterling buys the Clippers, who are still in Also good. Diego. Yes. <laughs> so good, good old run here. We're, both guys are just great people and great owners. So, yeah, it's just everything's looking up for the nba right now june of 81 the nba forms a committee to consider what steps may be taken to ensure the financial stability of the league and they report 13 million dollars in losses for the league in the 1980 season june of 81 also magic johnson signs a 25 year 25 million dollar deal which i think demonstrates that the you know this is a the rich owners and in good markets can still afford players but it's you know the uh, there are it's kind of a league of rich teams and poor teams very much where the poor teams, you know, are, are about like are in danger of folding and the rich teams like the Lakers are doing fine. Um, March of 82, the players union threatens a work stoppage after Donald Sterling falls behind in his payments. Later that month, a boycott is averted when Kansas City makes good on some of its deferred payments, including $50,000 to Oscar Robertson, which is Kind of amazing, you know, given that Oscar retired in 75. So and and, and <laughs> left the Royals in the late 60s. So and then some of that may have been lawsuit related money from the Oscar Robertson suit. But still, that's um, uh, in April of 82. It's reported that the league owes 80 to 90 million dollars in deferred money. So which is a crazy amount. August of 82, the NBA claims that 18 of 23 teams lost money. And then in October of 82, the owners, um, they come up with a plan seeking major reductions from players, reducing the size of rosters from 12 to 10, eliminating the obligation of re regarding player pensions, health, life insurance and severance play. 75% uh, of the players income from their shoe endorsements requesting that downgrading air travel from first class to coach and elimination of all guaranteed contracts. Now, <laughs> now, now, of course, this is, you know, where the NBA teams are claiming these incredible losses are also during a time in which there are CBA negotiations. And we saw this in, you know, with the last of the 2011 lockout where the league, you know, a lot of the teams were claiming poverty. And then just a few years later, financially, everything's great. And <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Economic situations change. And, and this is also 82 is also during a major recession as well. So, uh, you know, the, there is there may be some posturing, but there may you know, I, I, I'm certainly I think there are teams that are struggling. But whether things are quite as dire as the teams are saying, it, I think is worth considering a question. But it certainly isn't good that you know, these things are coming publicly coming up and, you know, that there's worries about these things.
Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I do think that's a little bit of both. But yeah, we, 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 we have seen it many times used from every sports league, particularly in the NBA, of, as kind of a, uh, a bargaining chip as well of like, hey, look how awful we're doing. And then immediately it's, yeah, as you said, like a year later, oh, wait, we're doing great now. Sorry. Like now buy our franchises for, you know, two million dollars or two billion dollars if you'd like to. Thank you. Bye. Like, yes. Um, so in February of 83, uh, Commissioner Larry O'Brien forms two committees, one to help ailing franchises and one to find ways to strengthen the whole league. Uh, and that the committee later that month explores possibilities of eliminating up to five teams, the Cavs, the Pacers, the Kings, um, the Clippers and the Jazz. So those five teams are all, uh, you know, there's there's danger of them um, uh, the, being eliminated at that point. Um, in March of 83, Ted Stepien seeks permission to move the Cavs to Toronto. And also that month, players agree to a salary cap and other concessions. Nothing like what they were requesting, but certainly, but they do, it, it kind of goes into sort of the modern system of the salary cap and the revenue sharing that the, you know, kind of the basis of the CBA today. A lot of things have changed, of course, since then, but kind of that basic framework is established in March of 83. Um in April of 83, the Indiana, Indiana GM says there's a high probability that the team will either move to Sacramento or fold. And soon afterward, the Cavs are sold to the Gund family and the Pacers are sold to the Simon family, which sort of stabilizes those ownership situations and make those better. So uh, the situation of some really bad owners, um, you know, uh, holding on to teams to solve at least the problem partially. Uh, June of 83, the Kings end up being sold to a Sacramento-based group, and they move a couple seasons later. Uh, also, the NBA expands the um, playoffs to 16 teams and begins with the uh, the Ted Stepien rule involving not being able to trade draft picks two consecutive years in a row. And in September of 83, the NBA and the Players Union agreed to a strict drug policy in which we begin seeing severe drug suspensions after that. Um and by 84, things started beginning to turn around as better ownership groups are found. Teams in struggling markets, you know, move uh, the San Diego ends up moving to the uh, to L.A. as well, which the NBA doesn't like. But that actually seems to help them, uh, although, unfortunately, we, we they're stuck with Donald Sterling for another 30 years. Um, <laughs> attendance and ratings increases, we mentioned, and the NBA starts to enter its boom period. So that that's kind of. You know, by 84, things there is there isn't really that, this kind of talk anymore of, of we're going to have to fold franchises. These teams are really struggling. You know, there may be a team here and there that has financial issues. But for the most part, the crisis seems to be averted by 84. And of course, you know, the, the boom is coming right after that. Yeah. And, and as far as like kind of digging into a, a little bit more of like the public perception of the NBA's future and issues with that, it's 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 hard to find a ton of articles or a ton of uh, news clippings, of course, in this time that are, that are really big and dire on, on, on the NBA's future. But uh, there is one um, that the New York Post, we couldn't find it, but um, the New York Post at least posted that O'Brien, who's obviously the NBA commissioner, denies NBA is kaput. So that was the uh, the headline there. We couldn't find the uh, we couldn't find the actual article, but that would have been interesting to read. Uh, but there was a really interesting one in the February 20th. 1979 uh, Sports Illustrated that's called uh, There's an Ill Wind Blowing for the NBA. And this is uh, really descriptive about a lot of the issues going on in the NBA, a lot of the issues going on, you know, just uh, what the league's going to do in the next decade, a bunch of stuff. But um, one of the quotes, you know, attendance is slipping and the league's TV ratings have plummeted, leading to a lot of cries and whispers about the real problems. So there's a bunch of really good quotes in there, too. And uh, and it also this article, which I, I definitely are this, 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 yeah, article, I guess you could say, uh, really, I, I would 
you know will people to go check it out because it's it's definitely interesting uh denver general manager carl Shear believes that the nba doomsday talk uh would be academic were it not for the unimaginative and inept management in new york so <laughs> that's uh that's interleague stuff that's not going on too well and it is, it is agreed that today's players are better than ever so this is a quote from that actual article as well that's kind of trying to figure out what one of the issues is it is agreed that today's players are better than ever they're so good in fact that many believe they're too good for the game when the nba began in 1946 no team made more than 30 percent of its shots today two teams are shooting better than 51 percent the nba record and the league-wide percentage is 48.4 percent yeah so i know i don't understand how more missed shots would be better for <laughs> i don't either i'm trying to figure that yeah. out too like oh, i was better when yeah i guess scoring was it like i don't i don't know i don't agree with that but okay yeah. like, i mean I, I guess there is yeah you scoring scoring loses a certain amount of value at a certain point if it's too easy to make shots i guess you know if it just kind of i guess that for it was like no nope, one's playing defense anymore they're just but yeah right. I, I don't i don't yeah i mean i guess not too far from what we're going on today. So it's weird how this is cyclical. Uh, the article also dances around a lot of it. And, and I, I guess I shouldn't say dances around. It really kind of meets it head on about the racial ramifications uh, for league-wide popularity. And it addresses that there were a lot of concerns uh, between, you know, nobody is quoted exactly as saying, but there's a lot of idea that, you know, rich African-Americans are kind of negative to a white fan base. White fan bases don't want to just watch a bunch of, you know, rich African-Americans play this game. And it was obviously a predominantly black game in, in the 70s. And most of the stars were black and all that sort of stuff. So there's issues of that too and they're wondering if maybe that is one of the things that's causing it but you know it's a little bit of this doom and gloom talk but it's not necessarily there's not a ton of like it, like you you kind of brought up a few things but again we, we we don't quite get that same idea of like oh my god here's what's going on you know oh you know they have a year left to go or you know like that it's just always kind of this idea that well you know is this league viable for the next decade or is this league gonna hang around or whatever so it, it never anything direct you know addressed directly but at least some different issues brought up and and, and questions asked so definitely check that out uh, there's an ill wind blowing for the nba it's in the february 26 1979 sports illustrated to get some nice insights into what was going on at the time yeah and it also mentions you know the Knicks late 70s struggle where you know the kind of the early part of the decade where the league started to you know at least gain national coverage if not you know necessarily more popularity um the Knicks were obviously you know one of the strong teams of the of the early part of the decade and you know once they started to decline you know once Chamberlain West um you know Baylor Oscar Robertson you know, the stars of the 60s into the 70s you know that next generation of players may have had a little bit of a difficult time connecting with um audiences you know even Dr. J there what you know we talked about looking at the TV ratings and things like there wasn't necessarily a huge um uh boost in you know in him bringing attendance and you know they really um you know, 77, they actually changed the schedule so that each team, you know, they had, they had a balanced schedule of each team playing each other four times throughout the entire league, um, hmm. where part of that was the anticipation that Irving would, um, you know, bring in so much, uh, you know, popularity, bring in such crowds that uh, everyone would, uh, you know, everyone would benefit. And, and I, attendance did go up that year before it went down the next year, but um, it, it's, you know, he didn't, for whatever reason, you know, the, uh, he obviously was a huge star and, 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 you know, one of the best players in the league and all that, but he didn't really bring that level of, you know, tr transcendent change that, yeah. you know, was kind of more ushered in by, you know, Burden Magic, even though he, he certainly held things up and was a great star, but it, he, he did, for whatever reason, didn't seem to, um, you know, inspire that great turnaround, despite, you know, being linked with a, you know, in a big market with a popular team. 
Yeah, and, and one of the things you mentioned a little bit there, which is addressed in this article as well, um, there's, a, there's a paragraph talking about the major media markets and how their attendance was all kind of down at the same time, which might have just been a confluence of a lot of things happening at once. But uh, here's a quote from the article. It says, however, the most alarming news is that attendance in the big four markets of New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Philadelphia is down drastically. Uh, the Knicks are down 11%. The Bulls, 31%, are once strong teams that have become woefully weak. Uh, the 76ers who uh, and the Lakers, who are both bona fide, uh, bona fide championship contenders, are down 19 percent for the 76ers and 11 percent for the lakers and there's a quote from uh, jerry west who was the Lakers coach at the time says people i talk to around los angeles all the time tell me that there isn't a great deal of interest in either the lakers or the nba so yeah uh, it could have just been a weird confluence of like yeah a lot of the major media markets just kind of being out or it's interesting to say but yeah it's just like it it all kind of came to a head in in one little time period there where you had because one of the article the article before that talks about you know some of these league-wide attendance is doing kind of okay because there's some markets that aren't the biggest, but are doing really well. Like the Detroit Pistons started doing really well. The San Diego Clippers uh, in their move from Buffalo did pretty well their first year. The Supersonics did well. Uh, San Antonio. So there were these like little, and I guess it gets into discussions we've had about, you know, the parody of the 70s as well, is that a lot of these like little small markets or little teams or whatever, or newer teams are doing well, but a lot of the big time teams, you know, your Chicago's, your, your to an extent, the Knicks, uh, you know, after their little period in the early 70s kind of struggled afterwards. And that could be... Uh, uh, an issue with how the media perceives it because a lot of the media markets are New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, that sort of stuff, and their teams aren't doing well and their attendance isn't doing well. So that could, you know, play into the narrative that all oh, the NBA is struggling when, in large part, you know, San Antonio it's doing great and Detroit it's doing well. So that's an interesting uh, aspect of it as well. Yeah. And there's also the aspect of, you know, they've just moved into. You know, basketball has come to a bunch of cities within the last five or 10 years that had never had it before or had ever really been successful. Just so just the time to, you know, build that goodwill. I mean, none of the initial NBA teams, you know, particularly did strong business, you know, for, you know, 10 years until the NBA was established or so. So, you know, it, it just is part of it, I think, is just it takes time to. Um, you know, build these things and, you know, it takes time for, you know, the benefits of expansion to take hold as, you know, you, you gain a foothold in your community and you, you know, you become a thing that people want to do. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's a wait and see for a lot of these teams, especially with, given how fast teams moved around in the, uh, you know, the late sixties and early seventies for a wait and see, you know, for a lot of these places where eventually, you know, once they, you know, once the team has some success and, you know, has some identity and puts down some roots, there's more of a chance for um, crowds to come to those things. So, you know, it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg kind of thing, too. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the the team needs the fan support, but the, the team needs to have a certain amount of, you know, cachet within the community before it can get that, whether through winning or just whether through being there and feeling like they're a civic institution. Anything else? No, I think it's about it. So I, I, I don't know. Did we did we solve that mystery? I feel like it didn't get as bad as people say, but I guess it wasn't great. But I, I don't know. I'm kind of in between. I don't know if we've solved this one. But yeah, I, I just I don't know if it's quite as awful as people sort of perceive it. But I think it helps the narrative then that Magic and Bird came and then there were the shining lights and everything was great after that. But I don't know. There, there's 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 definitely some truth to the fact that it wasn't it was struggling. But yeah, I, I don't know if it was quite as awful as, as people perceive. Yeah. But. I mean, there's definitely some nuance to it. Uh, I, I would have to say, you know, the, there is, there's truth to the myth, but I'm not sure the myth is actually true. Thanks for checking us out. You can find us at the step back at fansided.com. We also have other great podcasts that are part of the step at network, including fast Bake breakfast, nothing but nylon and the replay with L and L. 
So check those out if you get a chance. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast. Just search for Over and Back or The Step Back. And uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Over and Back NBA. So thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.